listening to Not Small Things, a weekly-ish conversation about the overlooked or under-discussed, but actually really important things impacting women today. I'm Kristen James, or KJ. And I'm Dara Aubard. I am really excited for today's episode because for the second in our series of episodes on health or medical anxiety, we are going to dive deep into a topic we touched upon in episode six, the mind-body connection. You and I have both had personal experience with this, and I don't know about you, but it continues to amaze me how long I was dealing with a mind-body issue before I realized that that's what it was. I suspect a lot of people aren't aware of the connection between emotions or even cognition, really, and physical symptoms. Or if they're vaguely aware of it, they still woefully misconstrue it, which of course can lead to other problems like the medical rabbit holes we described in our last discussion about this. But before we get to all of this, I need to discuss something not completely unrelated. My experience getting Pfizer dose number one. I'm also really excited about this episode because I I just don't think that this topic is unpacked nearly enough for people. And it's a, it's a really important one. And I also fully support this being a forum to discuss our vaccine experiences because I I have this mindset of A, they're either going to be relatively benign experiences. And I want people to feel like that could also be their experience because I think we talk a lot about the negative results people have or the negative symptoms that, that, that come out of it and not enough that like plenty of people are going through this and, and are like, meh, that was nothing. And if they're less pleasant, I think it's important that people know you get past it. It's not a reason to avoid the vaccination or to be super nervous about it. It is like whatever you might feel, it is not as bad as being on a ventilator. So like we had to skip an episode because my first dose completely knocked me out. And then my second dose was like a non-event. I started a big job assignment the next day and was fine. We had pre-decided to skip that week and, you know, nothing happened. And it feels really good to have it behind me. I'm really happy anytime somebody is on their way to being vaccinated and feeling closer to normal. And I'm especially happy to hear that, that you're on your way. Well, first, I have to give a shout out to my dear friend, the author, Kate McQuaid, whose books you definitely should be reading. Kate, her husband, and their kids are the type of people you feel blessed to know and legitimately honored to call your friends. And this was totally confirmed in Kate's case when she texted me out of the blue last Monday to say, are you eligible for the vaccine? Can I make an appointment for you? To which I initially answered, oh, you're the best, right? But, but I'm not eligible, much to my chagrin, because you know I've had some major vaccine envy for a while. Yes. And then she urged me to check again because... She had heard they had expanded the list of comorbidities that make you eligible. And sure enough, I could sign up because they lowered the qualifying BMI score. And of course, you know, the COVID-19, I actually haven't had, I haven't gained the COVID-19. I've gained like the COVID-10, but still it was enough. And by the way, as far as I can tell, that was the only change they made to the comorbidity list. So I don't actually think Kate knew that, but if she did true to form, She found the most gentle and diplomatic way to suggest to me that I'm overweight. (laughs) Anyway, Kate, who I have taken to calling my vaccine fairy, not only alerted me to the fact that I was eligible for the vaccine, 
as of April 5th instead of April 19th. But within less than two hours, she had made appointments for both my husband and me. I mean, is that not amazing? Like she, she just was like, do, do, do. And, you know, Kate has a job, by the way, and she has three children. And she was like, um, I just feel like I want to make sure you have a vaccine. So I'm just going to get you one. <laughs> it's amazing. Totally amazing. I love her. So I went on Thursday to a mass vaccination facility run by a hospital in the area. And like you were for your first shot which was like at a convention center, right? Yeah, the Javits. The Javits Center, yeah. I was super nervous. I hadn't been inside with anyone other than my close family members for over a year, right? And even when we expanded that to be like, you know, my dad came to visit or we would visit with my husband's parents or my brother and sister-in-law, they would all quarantine like super strictly for weeks before we saw each other. And now, you know, I was going to this very big room. I think it was like 65,000 square feet or whatever, but I was going to see potentially hundreds of people in there. Um, And it was, it was a little bit, well, it was a lot nerve wracking, but I masked up to within an inch of my life. I put on my stoggles, which are very fancy goggles, by the way, they're really cute. And I drove over there and I have to say, I was very glad to be wearing all the PPE because there was a huge crowd of people when I got there and the line to register for the shot snaked back and forth in the lobby of this room. So while you may have been six feet behind the person in front of you, you were essentially walking side by side with someone else the whole way. And there were way too many people wearing their mask or, oh my God, a gator, which don't they say is like worse than a mask? No gators. I mean, this guy, seriously, the guy who was walking right beside me, for effectively like 10 minutes was basically not masked because he was wearing a gaiter of all things and it was below his nose. So, I mean, I, I joked that there should be a separate vaccination facility for hypochondriacs. Like I was hoping that I would go into this room and everybody would look like me with the goggles and, <laughs> and the N95 mask. And so first of all, I wouldn't look so strange, but secondly, like I'd feel better about the number of people in that room. But no, 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 no. This was such a microcosm of, of how people approach this pandemic. Tons of noses. I saw them all. So pray for me that I got the vaccine for COVID and not the vaccine and COVID. But as far as physical symptoms from the first dose of Pfizer, just a sore arm. So no big deal. I, I feel like people say the second shot, especially for women and especially for people who haven't already had COVID is the big one. So I'm a little nervous about that, but it sounds like people who have had COVID before, maybe that's their first shot experience. And like you said, you lived through it. I lived through it. And I actually, I will say then reading the fact that the people who have the really significant response at the first shot probably had COVID because that's your body already has a level of defense was kind of a relief for me because I was pretty sure I had COVID at one point and like it was before testing was available. And I, I just, I don't know, there was something like, whoo, maybe I wasn't super crazy to think that I had COVID and I wasn't just in that, like, is it allergies or COVID conundrum? Like I, I, probably did in fact have it. But I just want to mirror back to you so you know you're not alone. The worst part of the shot was definitely the experience of being around that many people again. And 
not knowing where any of them had been. Like I could, I can control that in my life and I couldn't control it at the Javits Center. I mean, driving to the Javits Center sucked. I, I, you know, don't drive that much anymore, but that's my experience too. And I think that, you know, crowds are going to be a thing for me for some time. And I imagine for you, because you've, you've been a little bit more closed off than, than I have. You know what? I just have to say, I, I did not, I was not agoraphobic for the longest time, but I started to hate crowds thanks to gun violence already. And so (laughs) this, this pandemic is just, I mean, over the edge with the crowds. Like I can't, I I will not be marching. I'll be marching in spirit with people. I just, I cannot be around that many people like probably ever again. Okay. We're putting a pin in this and this is going to relate to things that we talk about later with our guest, because we're going to talk a lot about the, the long-term impact of, of anxiety and trauma. I get nervous in crowds too, because of active shooters and like the, the amount that I think about it is, it is definitely a signal that like something, uh, something is amiss in my nervous system, let's just say. But I am so glad you're half vaxxed. I can't wait until you're fully vaxxed. And I hope one day we're going to be recording one of these in the same room for a change, drinking out of our matching Shut Up Jeff mugs, which I'm actually drinking out of this morning. And then we can watch My Fair Lady or something really Gen X like Reality Bites and have a dance party in fancy clothes. So cheers to good friends who make vaccines happen for us and cheers to science. Definitely. That would be amazing. And speaking of good friends, I am so super excited to welcome our guest today. He's not only an expert on the mind-body connection and the host of the Crushing Doubt podcast, but he is absolutely one of my favorite people on the planet, Dr. Dan Ratner. Welcome to the Not Small Things Podcast, Dan. Thank you guys so much for having me and Dara for the extremely warm words. The feeling is definitely mutual. I hope that you know that. Can we also pause and acknowledge that you're our first male guest? So woohoo to that. You're not the only male guest we have planned for the podcast. I don't want like our listeners to be like, is this going to be the only man? And We're not anti-man by any choice, but you <laughs> are the first And so I think, you know, I want to thank you for joining us and especially for talking about issues that are important to many people, but to women in particular. And we're really thankful to have a medical practitioner come and help us expand on this topic, which means a lot to the both of us. Well, thank you. It is an honor. It's an honor to be the first the first man on the podcast. And I will do my best to make sure that all men after me fail miserably by comparison. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) We are extremely pro-man. We are also extremely pro-Dan. So it makes sense that you're the first, really. Well, also, you know, I'm a man who's very, very pro-women. I have I have two daughters and I have seen over time, you know, this, there's that thing when you're growing up and you hear as, as a boy like, oh, girls are more mature than guys. And I, I somehow would take offense to that. And now I realize that it's completely true. I'm a 46-year-old man, so I'm the equivalent of like a 25-year-old woman. You have a lot to learn. <laughs> you have a lot of growing up to do. You also have an yep. awesome mother. Can we just say that? I do. I do. And yeah. and that's a big reason why I have 
the experience I do of, of women. I mean, I, I was, I was raised more by a woman than anyone else, which I think mo a lot of people can say in a way, but it really is very true for me. Yeah. Yeah. So Dan, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with you or your work beyond the fact that you are a 46 year old man, <laughs> a 25 year old woman, or whatever, a 25 year old woman in a 46 year old man's body. Um, can you speak a little bit about how you came to specialize in the mind-body connection? I mean, is this something you were always aware of this connection or did it come to you as a result of what you were seeing in your therapy practice? Um, well, first of all, I was always aware of this to some degree. I grew up in a family that was very psychologically uh, minded. I went to um, a child analyst when I was six years old and I went for about four years and it was four days a week. That's like intensive therapy. So part of what you're seeing in me is what happens when a little, little kid goes to therapy for as long as I did. And during that time, I think I did get some idea of it. I used to have these knee pains when my mom would go away. Like when I was missing her, the knee would hurt. And I knew that was true. So I knew it was true even then, but I didn't have the full idea of it for a long time. And what ended up happening wasn't even through my practice or my growing up. It was that I developed terrible back pain and it lasted for eight years. And I had back pain every single day of my life, every single minute for eight years. And it was a really jarring experience to say the least, but, but not just the pain, but also what I found out there in trying to solve the pain was, was shocking. So I would, I would really say, it was through the, the pain. And then eventually I discovered this. Somebody told me about this book by Dr. John Sarno, who was an MD who understood the connection between the mind and the body pretty well. And he had a book and I read the book. And within three weeks, I was significantly better. And that set me on a whole path. So I can totally relate to this because I can't remember if I specifically mentioned this anecdote on the first episode we did about these kind of issues. But when I had hurt my back, I, you might remember when my daughter was a, a little baby and I hurt my back, um, like herniated some, not herniated some discs, I don't know, bulging discs or whatever, pretty normal stuff. And I remember I went to a doctor um, who at one point said to me, you know, is there a day of the week when your back hurts less? And I said, uh, yeah, actually it doesn't seem to hurt on Fridays. Oh, wow. And he said, well, what, what's different about Fridays? <laughs> And I said, well, I, I don't work on Fridays. Um, I'm home. I'm home with my baby on Fridays. It doesn't seem to hurt. And he goes, uh -huh. yeah. So this isn't all about your <laughs> bulging discs. And somebody else, I think, gave, gave me a book on the connection specifically between back pain and stress. And I wonder if it's this book. I can't remember the name of it. Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, a shout out to that doctor. That's, that's great to have some doctors out there who know about this and uh, set you on, because it could have gone very differently. You could have had a whole- Oh yeah, epidural shots, the whole thing. You could have ended up with back surgery, all kinds of things if people were giving you the wrong information. Yeah. Last week I was mentioning that book reading or the, the Dial Press relaunch that I went to. And I'm remembering that one of the authors in talking about what, what she focuses on and writes about, she was talking about how a lot of women, why they have like hip pain and, and like where your, where your hip meets your torso is she likened for women 
that area as your emotional junk drawer. It's like where you just throw everything and it gets stored and you Mm -hmm. never deal with it. And I was like, that explains so much about my life. Yep. Yep. And it's really interesting how, and, and, you know, the back is kind of a junk drawer too. There's, but actually the way, the way I have come to think about it is that the entire body is basically just a giant brain and we have this mind body process that's always flowing every minute. And so it just gets dumped into certain areas, but once, once it's been dumped into an, an area convincingly enough, that becomes your junk drawer. Everybody's got a junk drawer. So is that one of the biggest misconceptions people have about trauma and or, and or anxiety that it just, you know, that it's only in the brain, that it doesn't go anywhere else? Yes. Yeah, that's a very good way of saying it. Actually, I've come to see anxiety, depression, concentration issues, all of these things that people just think are just in the brain. They're really in the body, too. You know, we, we, we feel them, we experience them bodily. And um, it is possible to have what I would say like is an intellectual anxiety uh, that really does mostly stay in your head. But that's, that's really um, anxiety of thought. Anxiety, once it gets past thought and is about real feeling, it'll become real in your body. And I've never experienced anything as uncomfortable as anxiety in the body. It's unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, by, by extension, I think a lot of people, I, I'm not particularly athletic as you know, <laughs> but so many people would say to me like, oh, you know, you're stressed or you're anxious. You should just go to the gym on a regular basis. And I'd be like, what are you talking about? That would give me so much more anxiety <laughs> to be around like other sweaty people or have to get up early and then like worry about <laughs> getting home in time to get the kids to school or whatever. But, you know, I think there is a lot of truth about exercise relieving anxiety. And I wonder if that's in part because that stress or or anxiety is living in the body you're exercising. I think that's true. I used to think, though, that I used to be a little confused by this, too. It felt to me like we were just like doing a workaround where you just like burn off your anxiety or worries by exercising. But actually, I've come to see there's another side to it, which is you are getting to exist in a different emotional headspace when you're exercising. You're not, you're literally not thinking the same way. And as a result, your physiology is different. Our physiology changes with how we are thinking and we're always thinking different things. So the physiology just keeps changing and changing, and changing. The one time it doesn't seem to change is when we've got a, a quote unquote chronic condition And one of the things I like to talk about is that there are chronic conditions that are structural and permanent. And then there are chronic conditions that are chronic because they are always there because your thinking is always the same. And what we're finding, or at least what I'm finding, is that much more often than not, I would say over 99% of the time, it's the latter. It's we are thinking the same always. And that's why it's chronic. I had this big moment where I was in a yoga class and the instructor when we got to pigeon pose, talked about how for a lot of people, they don't like pigeon pose, not just because it's kind of challenging to get in and out of, and you feel like very disorganized doing it, but that it's very emotional for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Being in that pose, and then subsequently the practice after that, all the way through Shavasana, I started really paying attention to what was going on in, in my body and how I was feeling. 
and realize like, oh, I actually do let go of a lot of like real time emotion when I'm in that pose. And it's one of my favorite poses for that reason, because I go from a practice, which is like, I hate standing poses and things like that. But like, once we start getting into, into those kinds of poses, I realize like, this is why I'm actually in this practice. It is so I can flush some things out because I, I do think that that is, you know, that's a very hip oriented exercise. That is a lot of my junk drawer, but I can feel crap leaving me Mm -hmm. when I do those poses. Like I let go of a lot of things. That's amazing. Um, and and, you know, there's so much that I don't know about this and other disciplines that access different parts. You know, acupuncture is another example. These aren't areas of my expertise, but what I do understand is that physicality can release emotion and understanding emotions well can release physicality. And there's just a lot of flow between the two. Does that make sense? Yes, because I actually, at some point, a friend of mine recommended an acupuncturist to me a few years ago. And, you know, she said gently, like, this is somebody who works with a lot of women who have experienced trauma. And in my work with this acupuncturist, it ended up being the perfect mirror to what I was doing with an actual trauma therapist. Because I would, I would have a session earlier in the week that was very heavy. And then I could go to acupuncture and kind of talk about like, this is where I'm feeling pain. And because in acupuncture, you can feel energy moving through your body you know, you can, you can feel that flush out too. And, you know, just working with somebody who understood that and was able to also educate me on, on just, this is, these are things that I see in common with a lot of patients across a lot of women who have had the same experience as you was also just a relief. Like just somebody acknowledging you're not making this up. This is why this is happening. Like this is why Advil isn't working is, is a pretty big. Yeah pretty big significant thing absolutely i think one of the main things people face is this feeling that things don't make sense or they don't make sense or their body doesn't make sense and that that's talk about anxiety provoking when, when we're left in this space where we just don't know it's very upsetting and obviously there are lots of things in life we don't know but there are things we can know and this is one of those things you know instead of feeling like we we don't know or maybe it's you're making it up that, 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 I mean, that has an added component to it. And I should say this in the work that I do, nothing is all in your head. Uh, it all becomes very, very real in the body. So nothing's made up. It's more just what's the source of it. So I think this is, um, you know, one of the reasons why this issue seems to affect women so much is because women's emotions are so often dismissed. And so the anxiety you have about people not taking your anxiety seriously or about the physical effects that you might be feeling, people not taking it seriously when you say, oh, maybe, you know, maybe these things are real and they think, oh, it's just all in your head. That just gets reinforced over and over again. Yeah. I mean, you guys would have to tell me what, what, you know, what it's like to be a woman in that situation. But I do a lot of observing and listening and I try to be objective about it. And what I see is that that very much is true. That women are dismissed much more than people 
realize. I mean, to such a degree that I, I've worked with patients who will say, oh, I really wanted to have a boy. And I'm like, why? What, what's like, why is that? Why is that important? That, that means just that sentiment means that there's some part of society that's not treasuring girls the way they should be. I mean, I don't, I don't have any, <laughs> any hope. I, I actually wanted to have a girl. So you could ask me most of my feeling about boys, but um, I think that the dismissal of women would add to the anxiety, which I think is what you're saying, Dara. And then I also think there is a dismissal of types of symptoms also. You know, it's like anxiety is not taken seriously the way that a back pain is, for example, although back pain is not taken seriously in the way that it should be. So I think that the dismissal of women comes out in the dismissal of anxiety. People are so, um, they're kind of judgmental of anxiety and they kind of almost, I think some people roll their eyes at it as if it's not a, a serious thing. When I will tell you, anxiety is by far the most uncomfortable feeling I've ever had. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think if you haven't experienced anxiety and, and certainly if you haven't experienced the physical effects of anxiety, I think it would be very easy to dismiss them or misattribute them to something that then can send you down a massive medical rabbit hole. And we've discussed that before. And that itself just causes more anxiety. It, it's, it's just so many layers and then you really get, you get stuck. Well, there's also, a, a, I know everybody uses this term a lot, but it's a term that I have really, I, I continue to love. It's a very gaslighty kind of situation because not just women, but, but really the empaths of the world, whether you're a man or a woman, and I will include myself in that because I'm definitely one, but we are left to contain a lot of the emotion and, and, and anxiety of other people. And then they turn to us and they're like, what's wrong with you? Why are you anxious? And I'm like, gee, I don't know. Maybe it's because you dumped all your anxiety into me. <laughs> it's an important observation because I think that the empaths tend to get blamed. And I, I think women are, tend to be much more empathic, just generally speaking. So I just want to acknowledge that. I think it's a, it's a big deal. See why I'm so pro Dan. Do, do you understand now? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I just want to make this whole thing into a series of memes that counteracts all of the memes that say like, you know, don't look back. You're not going that way, girl. And I just want to vomit every time I see something like that. Yeah, no, it, it should be. It should be a uh, look back. There's some junk there that people place there for you. And let's help you get past that. Yeah. I, you know, I always, whenever we have these discussions about women and anxiety and being dismissed or, or empaths, um, I think about fainting couches a lot. I don't know why I mm -hmm. translate everything into interior decorating, but I, I, th <laughs> I think about that and I'm like, yeah, there was a whole like, type of furniture that was designed for women who were probably just super anxious about everything because there was right. so much to be anxious about. And like, uh, you know, their, 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 way of dealing with it was just be like, oh, well, here you go. Here's a oddly shaped, <laughs> oddly shaped piece of upholstery. Yeah. Well, and again, it was, it was disavowing their role in the situation altogether. Oh, but I'd also like to point out 
I think we could use curatively a why don't you rest piece of furniture instead of like, no, just push through it. Like it's both of these things. It's dismissive and condescending. And I'd like a piece of furniture dedicated to rest. That's not my bet. No, I totally agree. I just think it would be great if we could, you know, because men don't have there. There are problems on the other side of the coin, not that women cause them, because unfortunately men are causing most of the problems, but men cause problems for men also. There's, you know, if you had a fainting couch for a man, well, that would be ridiculed. There'd be a rebranding effort, I think. I'm on it. Uh, you'd, you'd have to go through. It's like a, uh, we need a self-care couch. Here, here's your big penis couch. <laughs> right, exactly. I, I think actually we, we, we have something here. We, we should do some, we should have rebranding efforts and we should also do these memes. We should do corrective, corrective memes. Yeah. Let's get it trending. Hashtag corrective memes. Corrective memes is going to be a big business, I think, coming out of, uh, <laughs> coming yes. out of this podcast. Guys, let's copyright this immediately. Yeah. Yeah. If only one of us were a lawyer. All right. So why don't more people know about this? I mean, why was that doctor who was like, you know, if this hurts you less on Fridays, maybe this is a, a little bit something you need to work on with a therapist and not just, you know, a medical doctor. Like, why aren't more medical doctors like that? Well, this is the exact question I asked myself. How did I, how was I stuck in this space for eight years when there was a solution? And why did no one in my life even know about it, let alone the doctors? And it's, I would say it's a complicated answer because uh, it is, but I will give you the short version and then we can have a longer discussion about it. And I'm happy to come back to talk anytime. So just let me know. I think that, first of all, a major reason that we have some of these issues is exactly what we're talking about. There's a whole psychology, I would say that's very gendered, that determines what is okay. And our society, in some ways, is trending in the wrong directions. In some ways, it's trending in the right direction, thankfully. But one of the ways that it's trending in the wrong direction is the separation between the mind and the body, which has grown over time. Now, the primary culprit in this in this uh, whole thing, as far as I'm concerned, we're about to get philosophical, is Descartes. So he believed in dualism, which split the mind and the body. And he's just completely wrong about it. And he's been wrong the whole time. I, I like to joke that he says, uh, you know, he said, I think, therefore I am. But I was like, no, Descartes, you did not think. And therefore we are in this situation. It's he split things and that philosophy continued. But then another thing happened, which is that it's natural that this could happen because the 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 human mind is trying to defend itself against knowing certain things. So we already did have this split. Descartes just made it worse. I didn't expect to get into a deep dive on Descartes, but I love this so much, by the way, I'm I'm I'm. <laughs> I think clearly what corrective memes are going to all star Descartes with like a big, you know, X marks across him or something. I blame Descartes. Yeah. Descartes. So there is this split where the mind is trying to protect itself from fully knowing all of these things. And what ends up happening is that that can creep into all kinds of different situations. One of the situations that it, that it crept into is technology. With technological advances, there are unintended consequences, always. Um, and I'm generally all for technological advances. A lot of them are great 
if we didn't have them, we wouldn't be here in many ways. You know, we've got the internet, we've got- Literally, we wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be looking at a little box of your face as you talk. Right. So there's all kinds of changes, but one of the changes that happened was imaging techniques of the body. So the MRI was created really in the 60s. If I, I don't remember my time frame exactly, which I probably should, but- And what ended up happening- is that people saw a lot of information and they made a lot of assumptions about what they were seeing. They made semi-logical explanations from what they were seeing, but as it turns out, the logic does not, does not apply. So they saw all of these structures that were deteriorating or damaged or whatever, and they misinterpreted it. None of those things cause pain at all. And we've done studies now that definitively show that. We started studying people who were asymptomatic, which was a great idea. I don't know why people didn't do it sooner, but we studied them and they had herniated discs and they had arthritis and they had all of these things that we think cause pain and they had no correlation to pain whatsoever. There were people who had perfect MRIs who were writhing around in pain and there were people who had train wrecks of MRIs who were completely fine. So I think it's really about the fact that we have misattributed information. No, I think that answer was brilliant. And, and it dovetails a lot with what this particular doctor opened my eyes to, which is that pain for the most part, I mean, not entirely, of course, but pain for the most part is a construction um, of the mind that you can, can work through. I mean, he works with a lot of, of, of athletes. And I think the shorthand of that is, you know, work through the pain is not always helpful particularly to those of us who aren't athletes or maybe even to athletes themselves, who I suppose can also further damage their, their body if they do that in the wrong situations. But to be told that you can, in some ways, train your body to ignore pain, that was their message. I think it's, it sounds like it's much more involved than that. And that actual therapy or, or, you know, examination of your emotional state, your mental state has more to do with it than just training your body to ignore pain. But the connection between the two was something that was, was new to me and um, completely eye-opening. So what is the medical explanation for these long-term physical effects of trauma? Like what is actually happening in your body that allows your emotional state to have these physical effects? Fantastic question. This will be a little bit long-winded, so please jump in at any point if I say something, because I, I would rather this be kind of a conversation than me just giving a diatribe about it. But the basic gist is that, well, let's, let's start off this way. We have to establish that the mind really can control the body. And this isn't hard to do. We, we see these things all the time. Blushing is a great example. You get embarrassed and instantaneously your blood flow changes and the blood flow goes to your cheeks or wherever you blush. And that's instant. That is a mind body experience. So I'm writing a book on this, which I'm actually almost done with. I can't believe it. So, and the longer I, I write this book, the better it gets, like the longer it doesn't get written, the better it gets. So I don't know. Um, but in any case, the, the idea is that as I was exploring these ideas, I kept coming up with other ways that this is true. And you know what's interesting is crying is what is known as psychosomatic. 
psychosomatic gets a bad name, that word, but what it really means is something happens emotionally and it becomes real in the body. There's a triggering of that. So with crying, you feel sad or even happy. It can be some big emotion. It changes the actual tear ducts and an actual physical change happens. Goosebumps is another example. And so the body is changing all the time based on emotional experience. Well, what happens with chronic conditions is that, or with trauma for that matter, is that the sympathetic nervous system, which is the part of your brain that gets revved up when it senses danger, changes your physiology entirely. And all of these different chemicals start pouring in from all over different places. Cortisol comes rushing out, adrenaline, there's toxins, neurotransmitters are doing all kinds of things. Your neural pathways are firing in different ways. You've got heightened nerves. You've got tense muscles. Like imagine if you're being chased by a lion. Your whole physiology changes. What's happening is the brain doesn't know the difference between being chased by a lion or asking a pretty girl out or giving a performance on stage or dealing with trauma. It doesn't distinguish between that. We have a part of our brain that is... Um, it's what I call, well, I don't, it's, I didn't coin this phrase, but I picked it up maybe from Sarno. I don't know, but it's called the reptilian brain, which is our, our primitive structure, ma mainly the brainstem. Our lizard brains. We know about lizard brains. The lizard brains. We've got a lot of them in Congress. But um, Oh yeah. But I think that uh, what is ending up happening is that I think of it this way with trauma, the sympathetic nervous system is like a car that's left in idle. It is just always on and it's not supposed to be always on. It's supposed to be running and changing. And if it doesn't do that, I mean, have you ever seen a car that's been left in idle for like two hours? It, it looks like, and I, I unfortunately have, which was a ridiculous situation. <laughs> uh, somebody said, oh, I'll turn the car on for you, you know, because we need to let it run for a little bit and just come out and check it. Well, I forgot to come out and check it. When I came out and checked it, that thing was a mess. It, it was like, you could smell the chemicals having all kinds of problems and stuff. And I was like, I hope I didn't just destroy this car. So the body is like that. The mind and the body are like that. And if they're left in that position all the time, lots of things go haywire. It's interesting because when I first had somebody tell me, you need to go to a trauma therapist, I was like, what are you talking about? I never would have identified anything that I went through as trauma, even though it was, it was a sexual assault. That's traumatic. But I think we do think of these things in degrees, which is, it's not like I was in a war. It's not like I was, you know, ever a hostage. It's not like I was sitting in, you know, my high school history class and somebody open fired. They, you know, what happened wasn't as, like big, dramatic, newsworthy type thing. But yeah, our, our lizard brain doesn't think that way. It's like, no, this was way too much data coming in and like, you can't process it. And then, yeah, you're the car that's just left on idle for infinity if you never learn to process it. Absolutely. And I, I'm, there's another thing that happens, though, that I would say, which is, you know, like to say that sexual assault isn't like being in a war. I think I, I would encourage you to think that it actually is. It, it's not 
It's not so different. It's not just that the brain doesn't distinguish. It's also that we are we're actually downplaying <clears throat> true trauma. Oh, oh, I, <laughs> I have. I, I know yeah, you know. I've that. corrected that, but I also. Oh, good. I, I and I know you yeah. would have, but I just wanted to come out in support yes. of that. Yes, but that was also uh, I learned through trauma therapy the way that I've learned to adapt to pain, which is emotional pain, which is I definitely as a kid reacted to things becoming type A and an overachiever and things looking like they were okay. So nobody would think to ask me, are you okay? Or do you need anything? It also convinced myself that I was okay. Right. But I learned to be like the joker of the family. I learned to make light of everything. And these things are definitely you know, I would say broadly strengths of mine when we're talking about like getting through, you know, a rough patch at work, but they, they definitely, I, I think hampered me as I got older realizing, you know, as I was going through the work thinking, yeah, I have a tendency to downplay and even make fun of my own pain. Yeah, actually that's, that's a great point to bring up. Uh, I, I don't even know if this is where you were going with this exactly, but I think that, well, let me say this, the, the, the pain sufferers of the world and, and the, the symptom sufferers of the world, which every, it's the human condition, so everybody has it, but I mean the people who have it more, they tend to be people who take care of other people and taking care of other people takes many forms. You know, being the entertainer is one of them. Being hyper-competent is another. And I, I, I know, I'm, you know, we are, we've got three of us here. I, I entertained everybody. I make people laugh all the time because I'm always trying to pay attention to what does everybody need? I mean, even in this situation, um, it's, I'm just thinking, okay, what, what, is, what does everybody need here? And, and it's just like, my mind just works that way, no matter what. And I, I value that part of my mind, but it makes it so that we are grappling with these things all the time. And, empaths or and people who have had trauma they're scanning the horizon for what danger is coming and so that that's going to activate the sympathetic nervous system so here's something i wanted to put a plug in for first of all if you're going to therapy i highly encourage make sure that that person is what i call trauma informed there are many therapists who are not trauma informed and they will completely miss the boat on all kinds of things so you know, Kristen, it sounds like you found somebody good for that. And that's fantastic. Yeah, I would second that because I went through about three rounds of therapy with just regular, you know, what you would call talk therapy. Yep. And when I got into an actual trauma specialist, realized like, oh, that process was actually just re-traumatizing me. Yes. Because I wasn't learning how to talk about these things and then connect everything. So I second that if you are listening and you feel like, you know, you've experienced trauma, definitely seek out somebody who understands how this works. Yeah. And if they're not trauma informed, they may actually reenact the trauma themselves. Actually, you know, like I went to see a therapist who I was telling him that my experience hadn't been believed and I wasn't seen. And he went on to not believe me and not see me. <laughs> um, 
And, and because I was doubting myself, I thought, well, maybe he's right. And so I went back in on that. But once I started seeing somebody who understood trauma, it was a whole different story. And so it's very, very important to say that. I'm glad to, glad to highlight that aspect of things. So what, once people listen to this podcast or your podcast and they think, oh, there, I do have a mind-body connection issue. What then? Especially if they wouldn't classify themselves as having been through trauma. I mean, they may have been, but they may not recognize they've been, or maybe they haven't been, but they still have these issues. Where where, where do they go from here? Um, that's a fantastic question. And I actually went right into what I was hoping to highlight. After I said that, I realized there's something else I want to highlight, not just about going to see a trauma therapist, but also one of the things that you'll find on my podcast and just in the way that I think about things is that things can change very quickly, actually. And we don't have that perspective on things. You know, we think therapy takes years. Well, therapy does sometimes take a long time and there can be a lot to process. But therapy sometimes takes a long time because the therapy is not being done well. And what we really need to do is recognize that the key is having the right information in the right way organized for your mind. If we can get those things, you will understand how it fits together. And the basic gist of what I do is people come to me. I do these um, short-term consultations. I do group sessions. Uh, I have seminars. I just keep building in things because so many people have so many needs in these areas. But they're all about using science and logic to understand what is happening for you. And, you know, there's, there's certainly a good dose of empathy and, and really teaching self-empathy. Once people accept their trauma, they can empathize with themselves. But some people out there wouldn't like it to be classified as trauma or maybe don't even, wouldn't even ever think of it as trauma. Maybe it isn't even trauma in a way, but you're still having an experience. People who haven't been through major trauma can still have the experience of danger. And so understanding the nature of that danger, what it is and what to do about it is really what I do. And it, it's a very targeted form of therapy that just by shedding light on it, that's the thing that can get the sympathetic nervous system to ease off. Ah, I understand what's happening. I'm not in danger anymore. I've got this. And that also brings on a, a tremendous feeling of well-being within the self because you feel very competent and at peace. I did not actually think that I could feel at peace. I didn't, I wouldn't say that I would have articulated that in the past, but now that I am more at peace, I'm like, oh man, I wasn't at peace at all. Yeah, I... When I got to a certain point in my therapy process, and, and I would also underscore for people listening that while I had, you know, a definitely violent experience, there were lots of things that preceded that, that, that I, that my body definitely perceived as, as a type of trauma. So it, it, it definitely, you know, we kept unpacking things and it's like things that I never would have labeled even like small t trauma, you know, were, were just things that, you know, I didn't have the capacity to deal with because of my age or 
because of, of how it was handled. And, and so there's a lot of things that go into it. But I got to a certain point where I realized in therapy, I feel emotionally lighter than I have in my entire life. And that includes my childhood. And that that's a gift that I hope everybody one day feels because I remember how it felt to think I would never feel okay again. Yeah. And I think that really sums up what therapy should be about. Many, I think almost everybody in the therapy field is trying, but that doesn't mean they have the right tools to help. And I also think they're not necessarily doing a good enough job looking at their own process or, or the process and saying what's happening here. But I think I'm happy that you have had that breakthrough. And Dara, I know you and I have talked about our various breakthroughs. It's a big deal to get to peace with yourself. It's a not and small thing. That's how we would frame it on this podcast. It, it is It is a not small thing. That is very, very true. You know, I want to highlight something else you said too, though, because I think for a lot of people who are just kind of starting to come around to the idea that there is something there that, that, that therapy is a thing that, you know, you don't need to be ashamed of utilizing and that it's out there to help the very issues you have. They, they are still reticent about going into a very long course of therapy. Um, and I, I love that you're doing kind of targeted therapy and that you acknowledge that if it's done well, it can happen very quickly. These changes can happen very quickly. And I certainly, I, I downplayed the um, importance, I would say, of, or the efficacy of therapy, because I had been to quite, I don't want to say quite a few therapists, because I've only, I've only dipped into it, you know, two or three times. Um, but it just never seemed to do anything. And I think it's because it, it wasn't a good fit for what I was going through. So, so yeah, yeah you could do it for, you know, till you're blue in the face, and it doesn't do any good. And then you start thinking, well, like all therapies crap, <laughs> you know, Absolutely. And I think a lot of, a lot of people think that, and I don't blame them for thinking it because right. it just, it hasn't been good enough. And you find the one person then, I mean, I, when my mom died and you know how traumatic that whole experience was, and we talked about that, I was already primed to recognize the physical symptoms of grief. So I knew that a lot of what right. I was feeling was that and I was also primed to know that it can take a while to get over that kind of a loss and the, and the trauma that just suffering with cancer can bring when it's that close to you. But I happened to find a great therapist. And like after the second or third session, she was like, you know, we don't really need to meet again unless you want to. <laughs> and I, you know, there was a part of me that was like, oh, do you not like me? I mean, that's when the right. social anxiety kicks in. But she was right. I mean, I, I, I meet with her once a quarter um, at this point, just so that I can, you know, check in. And, and I know that if I need to talk to her, I, I still have that connection. But at, real, at this point, it's really just like calling up a friend, you know, <laughs> because she, she did her magic so quickly. Well, right. And, and you can have a corrective experience in one session. I, I, I'm not saying that's the norm, but it kind of is in a way, mostly therapy. Like, let's say you go to therapy for nine years or something like that. Chances are you had two sessions in there that made the difference. <laughs> you, 
in all that time. And if we can hone that better, if we can understand what's happening better, then we can help people more. And then here's the thing. The body is the most empathic entity we have at our disposal. If we pay attention to what the body is saying, we'll get those messages. And if our therapists understand how to interpret those messages, boom, you're already at the aha session. Phew. So we need to end there for now um, because Dr. Dan needs to run and so do we. But take heart because we're going to just call this part one and we're going to be back next week with Dan for part two because this conversation is everything. It just crystallizes and moves us through a process of understanding in terms of what we've been talking about already. This is really kind of a breakthrough conversation for me. I agree. And I think because it's interesting to have somebody on who can speak to a variety of experiences. And we've had very different experiences, you and I, but with the same kind of end result, so to speak, of of it manifesting and us having to deal with it in the same way. So it's amazing to have this like third point that that helps bring this all together. And I just want to say, I feel like as he was speaking, I could... I was making mental lists because, you know, I love lists. Um, I was making a mental list of all of the specific friends I have that I want to send this episode out to, you know, I want to be like, hey, you know, that hip problem you're having? (laughs) Listen to this and go get some therapy. Oh, hey, you know that, you know, feeling you keep having recurring in your arm? (laughs) Just like, (laughs) you need Dr. Dan. We all have a junk drawer to clean out. That's true. It's so, so true. And with that, thank you for listening to Not Small Things. And of course, continuing to support us. We love hearing from you. You can check us out at www.notsmallthings.com or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. While you're there, be sure to drop us a rating. We love that too. And follow us on Twitter or Instagram at NotSmallThings. And we'll be back again next week with Dr. Dan.